achieved this ambition, but was told that he'd recite reams of Shakespeare in English, especially when he was in his cups. His curiosity and love of reading were traits that ran in the family, and were passed on to me as well. But his curiosity proved to be his undoing. One morning on his way to work, my grandfather saw a gang of laborers digging a ditch in the street. He couldn't resist stopping to watch them. A piece of flint flying hit him in the eye. Maybe he got the wrong treatment or couldn't afford the right doctor, but he began to lose his sight. This handicap, and possibly his drinking, cost him his job. His wife, my beloved Grady, took over the job and kept her household from falling apart. What a tower of strength Grady was. At seven o'clock every morning she would go to work, then in the evening clean house, wash iron and mend clothes, and cook for her large brood. My grandmother, before she married the Irishman, lived in England, and her speech retained British expressions. For instance, when she left for work in the morning, she would often ask the iceman or the milkman, Would you please knock up my daughters for me? Of course she meant, unaware of the American idiom, knock on the door and wake them up. Grady Hayes was a handsome and gallant woman, who, like many women of her time, emulated Queen Victoria in dress and deportment. She wore a little black bonnet tied under her left ear, long skirts sweeping the ground, and always gloves. Somehow she kept losing the left glove, so she wore only one glove and carried another, and no one could tell they were both right-handed. Grady was a faithful Catholic, but wore her faith lightly, while Grandpa was a fearful Catholic. By fearful Catholic, I mean that he was fanatical about observing even the most trivial rituals. The money was scarce, Grady couldn't afford to buy fish, so she'd make a hash or a stew, stretching out leftover boiled beef with vegetables and gravy, even on a Friday. Grandpa would sniff at the platter and yell, Meat! Take it off the table! Don't anyone eat it! What a load she had to bear on top of replacing her husband as breadwinner. When some of the children, my mother, my mother's sister Mamie, and a brother, grew old enough to work, they helped support the family. My mother, Catherine Estelle, nicknamed Essie, started as a cashier in a drugstore. A high-spirited and imaginative girl, she romanticized her family. Exaggerating her father's virtues and glossing over his faults, she created a legend that was more fantasy than fact. In time I learned from other relatives that Patrick Hayes had been a tyrant of a father who drove some of his children to drink or to early marriages in order to escape from home. After he died, Grady bought a small farm outside Washington, and the whole family moved there. As a young child, I lived on the farm with my parents. So did Aunt Mamie, her husband Fritz Fugit, and their two children. We were an assorted lot of cousins, aunts, and uncles. There was plenty of companionship for playing in the farmyard, tending the vegetable garden, roaming the fields and woods, and sharing huge holiday dinners on Thanksgiving and Christmas, when we exchanged homemade presents, which we children put more zeal than skill into. My favorite aunt was Mamie, probably because she fussed over me, even though she had her own kids to look after. She used to sew my clothes and dress me up like a bisque doll. But it was Grady Hayes who ran that household, providing for us, feeding us. She was a fine cook, not a fancy food, but wholesome stick-to-the-ribs meals, and she baked like a dream. I still remember her delicious coconut cake made with fresh coconut. When she went to market, she always bought oranges and peppermint sticks for the children. 
She would cut a hole in an orange, insert a peppermint stick, and then we'd squeeze the orange and suck the juice through the stick. It was one of the best things I ever tasted. But milk, which children thrive on, didn't agree with me. I developed symptoms that puzzled the doctors. They finally decided I could digest milk only from one particular kind of cow, a jersey. Granny got one and kept it on the farm for my sake, but my trouble persisted, and I was declared allergic to all milk. Granny Hayes was truly a remarkable woman, the strength of my young life and the kind of grandmother that has gone out of fashion. Grandmothers nowadays seek eternal youth, compete with their daughters in dress and behavior, use lots of cosmetics, have facelifts. In Grady's day, women were considered old at fifty, and she was over sixty by the time I was born. Her hands were rough and red from years of housework, her hair gray, her wrinkles honorable signs of survival in a tough world. Grady loved the theater, and would scrimp and save in order to buy gallery tickets for plays presented in Washington by touring companies. Among the great actors we saw was Sarah Bernhardt, who performed in French. We didn't know a word of French. But Grady claimed she could understand most everything because of Bernhardt's broad gestures and intonation. We also went to Nickelodeon theaters to see silent movies featuring Maurice Costello, Florence Turner, or Bronco Billy. Back home, Grady would act out a film we'd just seen, regaling the family with her mimicry, a talent she passed on to my mother, and probably to me. There was a time before I was born when Grady went to Baltimore. Solely to see Edwin Booth perform in Hamlet, Booth was America's preeminent Shakespearean actor of his day, and his Hamlet was renowned. But he wouldn't play in Washington because of his brother's assassination of President Lincoln. So agonized and tortured was he by the deed, Edwin Booth couldn't bear to set foot in the city where it had happened. So the Baltimore theater management ran trains from Washington, and Grady took one of those. Mother had two great passions: high society and theater. She would pore over the Sunday papers, skipping over news of politics and government to the social items and pictures in the rotogravier section. She liked to go to the Willard Hotel to watch the socialites, ladies in elegant gowns and jewels, strolling to take afternoon tea. These excursions fed her fantasy of rising above her station in life to shine among the elite. Her dream of becoming a great actress was sparked by the visiting troops. Like Grady, she'd scrape together the money for a couple of seats in the peanut gallery, and take me to see great stars such as Forbes, Robertson, and Hamlet. But I, being young, preferred operettas to Shakespeare. Because I was small and agile, I could run up the flight of steps to the galleries faster than anyone, and throw myself across two seats in the first row to save them from Mother and me. My first remembered theater experience was Franz Lehár's operetta *The Merry Widow*. I was exalted by it, hypnotized. When the curtain fell on the last act and the audience began to leave, I kept staring at the stage. I didn't budge from my seat. Mother tried to move me, but I wouldn't leave. Finally, a gentleman who saw she was having trouble picked me up bodily and began to carry me out. I began to scream. This is my mother's story. I won't leave. I won't leave the theater. And of course, I never did. When we went to see Forbes Robertson's Hamlet, I had trouble understanding it. During the play, I nudged Mother a couple of times and asked her to explain what they were saying. Helen, she whispered, "I'll tell you afterward." I can't enjoy it if I don't know what it's about. I replied, beginning to whimper. 
The action was leading into Hamlet's soliloquy, and I was completely confused. As I began to fuss, a deep, resonant voice from the row behind said quietly, He is wondering whether he should continue to live or end his life. I turned around and was face to face with a black man, who from then on whispered in my ear, helping me through my first Hamlet. Years later, when I was in Washington to perform in Harriet, a play in which we had several black cast members, I learned that blacks were no longer allowed in Washington theaters. Remembering with gratitude my childhood experience, I made a big fuss, refusing at first to play there. At the urging of the producer, I relented, but I made it clear to the newspapers that I was playing under protest. It was a disgrace that such a situation existed in our nation's capital, I said. I urged all actors who were members of Actors' Equity to refuse to play in Washington until the theaters were integrated. At this, the manager of the National Theater threatened to close, saying he would not be responsible for the bloodshed if he allowed blacks in. I persisted in my battle. Friends in Washington were heartsick and begged me to stop making such a row, but I never gave up. Today, of course, this seems like ancient history. We went to concerts, too. One day when we came home after hearing the violinist Misha Elman, Mother bubbled with enthusiasm. She said to Father, Look at Helen. She's all aglow. Her eyes are shining. She just loves music. We'll have to give her violin lessons. Father took a close look at me and said, It's a fever. I think she's got the measles. And he was right. Mother managed to save up the money to pay for acting lessons at the Robert Downey School. Through a close friend who was married to a producer named Fred Berger, she then got a job with his fifth-rate touring company. His wife, Bess, and my mother appeared in the chorus of a terrible show called Liberty Bells. It played one-night stands. This taste of show business, one can't really call it theater, whetted her appetite for the next tour.